Good morning, Connection Point Church. How are you doing? All right. Well, I'm glad that you are here. My name is Joel Halpin. I'm the pastor of this church. Uh, if you are new here or if you've been here every single week since we began, I am excited for this message in particular, and I'm glad that you're here. It's going to be a great message, and I want to start off by telling you how to ruin Christmas, okay? And uh, some of you might need some help with this. Some of you might not need some help with this, but when I was in high school, I figured out the best way to ruin Christmas. You see, for weeks and months leading up to Christmas in high school, I only wanted one thing for Christmas, and I was very clear every single Christmas list that I, I made had one item on it, and I would always have people come and say, are you sure you want this one item? Because, you know, there are a lot of people that want to give you gifts, and my parents said, you know, what about something else? And the one item was a computer. I wanted a nice computer. I had picked it out, and at the time, the fastest processor was a 486DX processor, and this was actually a little faster than this, the one I wanted. It was a 586. It was made by a different company. I had done so much research to figure out what I wanted, and my parents would say, you sure you want a computer? I mean, and I was like, I'm going off to college. I want this computer. I would just love a computer. And every single day coming up to Christmas, I was so excited. That's all I was thinking about. I was just so excited. I was imagining, envisioning the moment I would, would open up this gift on Christmas. Would it be one of those that's already under the tree and I just didn't know it? Would it be something that Santa left just out unwrapped, which he did at my house? He doesn't always do that for some people, but at my house he would do that. And would it be from maybe my grandparents or somebody else? I don't know. And so Christmas morning comes, and I'm so excited. I'm so excited that I'm finally going to get this computer that I've been wanting for all of three or four months, and that's all I've been wanting. The first few gifts I'm able to tolerate, right? I'm able to say, okay, thank you, and put on the smile, because I know it's coming, but as it becomes more and more clear that this gift is not coming, I... I know it's wrong, and I know that I'm supposed to be excited and thankful for every gift that I get, but it becomes more and more difficult for high school Joel to put on a face of this is okay. And I remember going over to my parents' house, which this is the last place that I'm going to receive gifts. I mean, not going over to my parents, being at my parents, and all the family had come over to their house. And so all of the big gifts are usually gone by the time all the family gets over there. And so I knew it's a, it's a long shot. And I remember the last gift comes out, and it's a box that's, you know, this big. And I just think to myself, that is clearly not a computer. And I remember just having this feeling of, okay, Joel, you can do this. Put your smile on. And I, I put this fake smile on. And my parents, I could just feel the disappointment as they saw Man, he is not happy. And I tried to be grateful, and I tried to say the things, but I could not hide the fact that, man, this was the Christmas I did not get a computer. And it was just a Christmas that, even to this day, I feel guilt over the fact that, man, it was an awful Christmas. I made it awful. I didn't want to make it awful. My, my heart was not to ruin it. But because I just, I had so much anticipation, and it was all for naught, I just ruined, and every we would go and, and have great meals, we had great foods. I'm sure I got other great presents. I don't remember anything other on that Christmas other than this moment where I'm sitting at the table and I see my mom just say, I'm sorry you had a bad Christmas. And at that moment, I just realized I ruined Christmas. 
My family could feel it. My parents, I know, could feel it. And I was trying to be happy, but I couldn't. And this is what I realized, is that being so future-focused, being so focused on this one moment of what's going to happen and how much excitement and happiness that was going to bring me, being so future-focused caused me to miss all of the other presents that I was given on that day and the excitement of Christmas that I had experienced every time, every year from before that year. I messed up Christmas simply because I lived so much in the future. You know, there are so many of us that are so future-focused that we miss the presence of God in the present. Now, if you've grown up in church, you may, not, you may have, have had this moment where you realize, you know what, I don't know if I could go into church. Most people coming into a church for the first time or, or understanding the gospel for the first time, you hear this message that God loves you even if you've sinned and no matter what you've experienced in your past, God wants to heal your past. And last week we talked about God can heal your past. And it's an exciting thing for if you've never experienced the forgiveness of God. That You go in, maybe it's at a church service, maybe it's just you and God, and you have this experience where you realize God sees you as a child. He loves you. Even if you've had a, a past that, that most people would say God would never look at me, when you begin to see God has forgiven my past, I can have a great, I can experience his presence at any time. But if you grow up in church, you kind of, that, 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 that memory kind of fades you kind of begin to forget what it was like to be forgiven of your past because your past, you hear it so often, my past was forgiven. And you begin to settle into this, this experience that when you sing songs at Christmas about joy to the world or about you know, the presence of God and, and, and happiness of God coming to earth, and you begin to look around and say, you know what? I don't really feel as if I am filled with joy. In fact, there are some of you right now that if I were to say, hey, how many of you are filled with so much joy this Christmas season? And you'd say, you know what, I'm not quite there yet. See, if you've been in the church for a while or if you've been a Christian for a while, we begin to move past our past but we don't stop at the present. We go into the future and we begin to worry about things. So much so that we miss what God is doing right now. I want you to just take a moment and think about how many of you right now, if you were to say, you know what, there's something this week, there's something coming in the next month that, that's got me so concerned that I can't wait till I get past that moment. Or maybe you're like me and I don't live with a negative view of the future. I'm, pretty a, I'm a positive guy. But I get so future-focused, I can't wait till tomorrow, I can't wait till the next day, I can't wait till the next day, that I'll, I'll begin to live in the future and I'll miss what God is doing in the now, in the present. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk uh, about God not making us have a better future and this hope of a better future. I want to talk about how God can save you from your future. Because we've all been, we've heard the, the church message of God saving us from the past, but some of us are stuck in the future. You're living with fear or anxiety of what's to come, or maybe you've just got so much anticipation of this thing that's going to happen, like a Christmas gift that may or may not happen, that, that you're living and you, you risk living a life without joy today. Maybe you have a family member, a spouse, or a child, and you can see they're not, they're not living every day in joy despite the fact that they come to church, that you know they have a relationship with God, but for something seems to be missing. 
There's not this joy that comes with knowing that the creator of the world has, has come to meet you. So today I want to look at the Christmas story, and I want us to look at this perspective of what happens when we get stuck in the future. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Um, and as I do every Christmas, one of my favorite things to do in Christmas is to uh, ruin your manger scene, okay? So when, as we go through the Christmas story, I always like to point out the fact that historically a lot of us are, if you actually read the Bible, our manger scenes are way off, okay? Now, Matthew chapter 2 starts off this. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So let's set the scene, okay? The wise men are coming from the east, which probably from at least Iran, maybe further than that, we don't know. But, uh, and I, I go over this every year, how many wise men were there? There were, we have no idea. There were three gifts. You don't know how many wise men there are. My guess is there were a lot of wise men, okay? And these wise men could have been kings. They were probably very rich. They were well-connected. And they're coming from the east. They are coming in caravans, probably, with camels and all these things. But there are more than three, okay? Now, just a, uh, another little reminder is, uh, and we'll get there in just a second, but it says that, that the wise men saw the star. So, did the shepherds see the star? No. The star was not for the shepherds. The star was for the wise men. But when you think about your manger scene, let's just get this right, okay, the wise men come about a year or two after Christ is born, okay? They did not come the night of Christ's birth. We're going to see, and if you read the story, the wise men come to the house, you'll see that they come to the house. Jesus was not born in a house, okay? He was born in, uh, uh, there's some conjecture, but he, he was most likely born not in the house that the wise men come to, okay? So about a year or so has passed, by the time the wise men actually come. We know this because Herod actually puts out a hit on all of the kids of Bethlehem, and this happens, for he chooses all of the kids two years and under, meaning he knows that this has happened in the last two years. It wasn't every kid born in the last three days, okay? So, your manger scene, so let's get them correct. If you have a star on your manger scene, okay, spray paint over that star, okay, or get rid of, break it off, snap it off, okay? And put it in the other room with the three wise men that come with them because they're still two, a year or two away from getting to the manger scene. So if you want to have an accurate manger scene, that's what it looks like, okay? They're following a star that's way far away, okay? How many of y'all actually going to know one? Okay. I'm just saying if you want to be historically accurate, that's how we would do it. So they're coming and they come to a place called, um, in Jerusalem. Actually, this is something that's very interesting to me because... In January, I got to go to Israel with John Williams, and we went to a place that I had never heard of. It was called the Herodium. I want to show you a picture of it, okay? This is a, a picture from far away of the Herodium, and that mountain there is not a mountain. Um, I, whenever I look at this picture, I always think of, uh, of Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, that's no moon, okay? That's no mountain, okay? This is actually a fortress made by Herod the Great, okay? Now, there are several Herods in the, in the Bible, the Bible, or the Herod that we're talking about now is the first of them, Herod the Great, Herod the King. And he makes this building that is a fortress, and then he surrounds it by dirt so that it becomes a mountain. In fact, we went up into this, and you can see the next picture is us. Uh, it's not us, but it's inside. This is taken down 
inside he has this fortress. In fact, that, that tower was at one point two stories higher than the mountain. And it's fascinating. This, there is swimming pools down that he could go swim in. There is a, a synagogue in this mountain. There are tunnels all throughout this mountain. It is fascinating that he built this, this palace. And in fact, this palace was very hard to uh, penetrate. If you were going to try to um, siege this palace, there's, uh, um, I've got a story if you want to, or I've got a picture. If you go on connectionpoint.life and follow along, you can find the scriptures there. I've got a picture there of me standing by all these giant stone uh, balls that basically would be rolled down. If you tried to attack this mountain, they would just start, have all these rolling uh, stones. They would just roll down to attack. It was, it was a impenetrable fortress that Herod the Great had made, and it had so many interesting things about this place. Well, what it was fascinating to me is that there's a view on your way up. I want to go to the next one. There's a view on your way up when you stop, and in the distance is Bethlehem. And it's very fascinating that from the top of Herod's palace, where the wise man would have been going, this is where they would have met him, was in this palace, that you could look and see Bethlehem. And so when the wise man come to see or find Jesus, and they go to this place called the Herodium. They go to a place that is a few miles away from Bethlehem, and everything we're about to read, remember, Herod can see Bethlehem from this, when they're talking about Bethlehem, Herod can see it. So let's continue in the story. It says, the wise men come, and this is what they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, that seems like an uh, innocuous thing to say, but understand, if you ask Herod the Great who is king of the Jews, Herod the Great would answer, that would be me, I'm king of the Jews. In fact, his uh, entire territory of Jerusalem was filled with Jews. That's pretty much Jewish people were who he was in charge of. He had converted to Judaism just so he could have their respect. And so, when you come to Herod, these people must have been well-connected. Because if you or I would have gone to Herod and say, hey, where is, we heard there's a new king of the Jews, Herod would have probably had you executed on the spot. And so, these guys, there probably were a lot of them. They probably came with some soldiers as well. They probably came in good faith. But understand, we're talking, I think, at least dozens and dozens of people coming in, in this caravan, not just three guys coming with a backpack of, you know, some presents. Now, when they come to him and say this, this would immediately, if you were king trying to control your territory, this question would have put you on edge. What do you mean, king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. How could this, you know, what are you talking about? And so Herod plays along and he doesn't have them executed. But just know, historically, Herod must have been on edge from this, and these guys must have been more than three because they, three guys would have been killed by Herod on the spot. Herod was known for this. His tem- temperament, by the way, is one that would kill. He had his uh, wife killed when he thought she had cheated on him. He went on vacation, comes back, and he's like, oh, you seem happy, and I've been on vacation. Why would you be so happy if I hadn't been with you? Obviously, you cheat on me, and he has her killed. And then he goes to his mother-in-law, because now that he doesn't have that wife anymore, what do you need a mother-in-law for, right? He gets rid of his mother-in-law. He executes his mother-in-law. Don't say amen to that. Now, as you go through this story, so then Jesus and all this happens, but later on what's going to happen with Herod is he's actually going to execute three of his very own sons. 
because he thinks they're going to try to take over his throne, that he's gonna, they're going to try to take, over, uh, take him from power. And so understand, looking into the mind of Herod, now Herod did a lot of things. He was called Herod the Great by uh, a lot of the, his followers. He built a lot of great buildings, including, I mean, you, you just saw what he did at, at the Herodium for himself. He built a, he built, built a lot of things. A lot of people liked him, but his temperament was one, that if you crossed him, you would be in trouble. So there must have been a lot of wise men, and they came knowing that this is a dangerous thing. This is a dangerous situation to go to Herod and ask for the king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And I just want to stop for a second on this. And I want to begin to take us into the mind of these people in the story. First of all, Herod was troubled. We know why he was troubled. Because he's just learned that somebody else, king of the Jews, is, is threatening to take his spot. It's a child. But all of Jerusalem with him, and, and this is probably a, a little bit of semantics, and when, when any time you say all the people... It's probably not all the people, right? But anytime you have a guy like Herod who gets troubled and he's your ruler, without a doubt, you're going to be a little troubled as well. It's like everyone who's ever grown up with a, the, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's kind of the, if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Okay, that's the situation. And so the, the feelings of this are going to reverberate all throughout, certainly his palace, but probably throughout the, the land that Man, Herod is really on edge, and he is making some crazy statements. In fact, we know one of the things he would have done, or that he did later on, we're not going to get to today, is he actually called for all of the children in Bethlehem to be executed. And uh, some historians actually say there's no way this happened because uh, we don't have a historical record of it. I just want to point out something, that Bethlehem's population was only about 300 people. And so if you think about a church of 300, um, when you think about how many two-year-olds and under would be in that, we're probably not talking thousands of, of children that he executed trying to hunt down Jesus. He, he, he most likely went after a few, though, or probably a dozen or so, that he would have been in Bethlehem. And we don't know if the soldiers would have carried it out, but he, he gave a command, hey, let's kill all of the children in this city. And so... This would have been troubling to all of the people. They would have felt, man, there's something going on. There's something going on in the politics here. But when we think about the future, as far as what Herod anticipated, you can kind of get into his mind. So I want to ask you this question. How do you anticipate your future? When you think about the things coming up, there's really only two ways you can anticipate your, your future. Either... You are in control or God is in control. Those are the only two ways. And you may say, well, no, 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 I don't think anyone's in control. I would just point out, you don't live that way, okay? You live, if you think, you know what, hey, maybe you're here and you're not convinced that God even exists. No one's in control of my future. You live as if you're in control. I promise you, you're going to do your budget. You're going to do everything about your life as if I've got to do this. I've got to make this happen. If I don't make this happen, then it's not going to happen. Some of us live every single day. If I don't do this, then no one will do this. I'm the only one that can make this happen. And then the other, the other way you can live is, hey, God is in control. 
When we think of Herod, he definitely has a mindset of, if I don't do this, I'm the only one in control. And we see this mindset throughout. Now, he converted to to Judaism, but he did this for political reasons. We know he did not follow all of the Jewish laws. He followed the ones that were convenient for him, but there were others that he had no problem breaking, like killing kids, okay? Now, when we think about Herod's mentality... Most of us, when you hear a Christmas story, you think, you always put yourself, you know what, I'd be like the wise man. If I was in the story, I would be the good guy, right? But I just want to challenge us of how many of us, when we really think about the way we live our life, do we live our life with anticipation of, what God, of God being in control of our future, or do we live our life as if, you know what, I am the only one who can control my future? I would say most of us live as if We are the only ones in control of our future, and this causes a lot of uncertainty. It causes a lot of fear. A couple of days ago, my son, Elliot, who's 10 years old, was having a grand old time. He was playing with dominoes, and he was building, he wasn't, you know, throwing bones. He was making chains of dominoes that he would knock down. You understand this, right? He's 10. Uh, So anyway, as, as, as he's making this, I, I go over and he's stacking books. He's doing what I did as a kid. He's making this long chain. And now, life is full of tornadoes, right? Now, in our house, our tornado is five years old, okay? And she walks around indiscriminately at any point, okay? And our little tiny tornado hears Elliot playing with dominoes, and she can't resist, and I hear the fear in his voice. And so I go over and I'm watching, and I immediately say, Annie, who's five years old, full of fun, but also full of energy, and I see the panic come on Elliot's face because he's got these dominoes stacked up, perfectly balanced, and he doesn't do what you'll do later in life. You remove some of the dominoes so you don't knock them. He hasn't done this, okay? He's 10. Give him some break. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go over this later. Domino stacking 101. So... Annie's approaching, and I immediately say, Annie, do not go near those dominoes. To which she moves a little faster to get to the dominoes before I can actually get her away. And Elliot, I can just hear it in his voice. Dad, she's going to mess up my dominoes. And, And she gets closer, and she slows down, and she's getting closer. And I'm still watching. I can see it. I can see Elliot now begin to put himself in between her and his dominoes. And he's doing everything he can because he knows, hey, I can't trust dad to stop her. I've got to do this myself. And so I I walk closer. Annie, don't you get near those dominoes. I, I start taking some steps to which Annie notices. So she takes a step back, but she moves so that she can get a clear view of what he's doing. And Elliot begins to cover his dominoes, doing everything he can so that she can't. Not only does he not want her to knock them over, now he doesn't even want her to see the dominoes, okay? And so because of this, the inevitable happens. Elliot knocks his own dominoes over. Now... This starts, we won't call it a fight because our, I'm a pastor, our kids don't fight, right? We have a very, very focused debate over whose fault this is, okay? Now, Annie's case is, I didn't touch anything, and Elliot's case is, you made me do this, okay? Now, this 
debate goes on for quite a while, but it just makes me think how much Elliot was so focused on controlling a situation. If you've got a five-year-old seeing dominoes, there's no control in this situation, okay? Uh, there's no control. No matter how much Elliot thinks he can control it, the more he, he tried to cover and protect, the more damage he was going to do. When I think about Herod, I think of a man who was trying to cover his kingdom, to protect, to control every aspect of his kingdom, even if it meant assassinating his wife, even if it meant assassinating whoever, taking out, controlling his future in any way possible. The irony is, he's got two, or I mean, he's got these, these men who have just come and given him this news. The Messiah, this divine being, this prophecy, this promise that we've been waiting years and years, God himself even, is within a few miles of you. And instead of running to experience this presence and this peace that imagine what God could have done if he would have given the peace to Herod of you know what, I've got this. I'm now here. I'm in your kingdom. But instead, he was so focused on control, he missed out on the joy and the peace that he could have had because he was so focused on controlling it. I want you to see the mindset of the wise men. It says, when Herod was troubled with all Jerusalem, he assembled the chief priests and the scribes and all the people. He inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written of the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the men, the wise men, secretly, and he ascertained what time the star had appeared to them. And he sent them, and they probably said a year ago or, or however long that, that caused them to go. Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. And he has this opportunity. Now, his motives are not sincere, but he has this mo- opportunity because he's got these wise men who have a different perspective of the future. They're willing to go into probably the most uncertain place they could have gone. They had a comfortable life, they were rich. They had people that could protect them. They were probably well-connected. They might have even known Augustus himself because for some reason, Herod doesn't put a hit on him. So Herod obviously had some reason where he's like, I can't just take out this situation. It would not be a good decision. And he sees these men that are not concerned with their wealth or their riches or anything. They just want to be in the presence of this child and they want to know what it's going to be like. And, And as he sends them off, he's so close having the presence of God himself three miles away. He can see it as they're saying, it's probably in Bethlehem. He probably at least walks outside and says, right there, this whole time, there's been a child who's king of the Jews, sent from God, the son of God. Now I want you to see what happens to the wise men. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when they rose went out before them until it came to rest of the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they too haven't met Jesus yet. They haven't been in. But their, their view of the future 
is one that's marked not with troubling fear, as we saw with Herod. Not with one of, of how am I going to control this situation? What's going to happen if God actually comes here? He might mess up my plans. Instead, they had this, this thought, you know what? We're going to follow God wherever he takes us. And we know when we get there, it just, it's an overwhelming sense of joy for these men. There's not a, a fear, even though they entered into a situation that most of us would say, you know what, I'm never going close to there. God didn't control my future that much. These men said, I'm going to go find the presence of God wherever it is. And as they go, they get to the door, and I just think of this time where they're going to knock on the door, and they're going to open the door, and they're going to see Jesus in front of them. This, this child that not only have they heard these prophecies probably from Babylon and beyond, but they've, they've also seen a star that, think about this, it appeared to them two years ago or a year ago and made them get up and gather together all these details. I'm not much of a detail guy, if you didn't know, but just the, the idea of how are we going to put together a caravan that's going to allow us to go on a journey that's going to take quite a while. It's going to feed not just us, but all of our caravan. It's going to make sure that we're protected because the easiest way to get rich is to rob a caravan that is unprotected. How are we going to, all these logistics of how are we going to get there, and when we get before Herod, what are we going to do if Herod goes this way or if Herod does this? How are we going to, how are we going to think through all this? So all these details they had to think about their future, they had to, to at least kind of be concerned of, and they, 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 they get all these details, and now they've gotten to this moment where we're here. They knock on the door, and it says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and with his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They have this moment where all I want out of life, I'm already rich, I'm already blessed, I'm already this, I want to be in the presence of God. And this brings them a joy <laughs> that apparently their money did not bring them. Apparently their, their, their situation in which they were living in comfort did not bring them, but they, they, they're filled with joy when they enter into this room. What I want you to see, though, is what happens next. This is what I love about this, because when I think about how I live my life, I will tell you I live my life concerned about the future, not in a bad way. In fact, part of me a while back was, was kind of like Herod. In fact, I will tell you this morning was much different than when we started the church. The first day that we ever started this church, it was 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. I want to just tell you, I was doing everything, and all I was thinking about was that day, and I, I had helped set up the kids' area. I had set, I had, the night before, I had laid out everything in our truck. I knew in my mind where everything was going to go, and we got to the first day of our church. It was in a school uh, kind of like this one, and when we got there, everyone looked at me, Joel, what's got to be done? And I started telling you, you go here, go here, go here, go here, and one of the things, and this is, you're going to find it funny. It's not as funny to me. Uh, and it certainly wasn't in the moment, but the night before, as I'm putting all this stuff in the truck, I had this thought, you know, I haven't actually planned the service yet. And in fact, I haven't, and we're less than 12 hours away from our first service ever, and I haven't actually written the sermon yet. In fact, I haven't even thought about the sermon yet, because I was so focused on the details that I didn't think the one thing really that only I can do, I've got it. And so my first sermon, I had a guy there that was there to evaluate. It was another pastor just to help me out. And he said, 
That was the worst sermon I ever heard. That's the feedback he gave me afterwards. He said, uh, the job of a pastor is not to hit a grand slam every week, he told me. He said, but you got to at least hit singles. And maybe if we're lucky, that was a foul ball. That's what he told me. I will tell you, this morning I got up. And I did not think about setup. I did not think about anything. In fact, the only thing I knew I had to do was come with a word for you. And one of the things I've learned is I can't, if I try to control everything in this church, this church will be worse for the wear. And so I've tried to, to be better about you. I can't live with all the details that I can't control or that I don't need to control. And so now when I think about my only job, it's bringing the word. You know, this is a, a good example of this. Two years ago, um, I was approaching my 18th wedding anniversary. And on the week of our wedding anniversary, I made the decision, you know what, let's go out to dinner. I'm going to take you out to dinner. We went to one of our favorite restaurants. We had a great meal. And about 20 minutes into that meal, Joey calls me and he's like, okay, we're here at our, our, our meeting. And I had called a staff or a lead team meeting and the whole leadership team had gotten there. And I had forgotten because I decided I was going to do this. And, and as soon as Joey laughed at me, got done laughing at me, because I told him I'm on a date with my wife for my 18th anniversary. He says, don't worry about it. We got it. And I got, of course, you know, that's kind of par for the course with me. But I quit and I, I, I hung up the phone and I remember talking with my wife and she said, do you need to go? What do we need to do? And I said, you know what? This church is stronger than me now. You know what? I don't have to be there because here's the thing that I've, I've learned is God won't just move without me. God is moving without me. That God is moving without me. And, and there's obviously this mindset with the wise men. Hey, God's doing something here. We can get on board or not. And look what happens to their future. It says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own way by another country. You see, the same promise that we heard last week, you will call his name Emmanuel, that means God with us, is the same thing that the wise men experienced. Is you know what, I don't have to worry about our future. When I'm following God, when I'm, when I'm trusting God with my future, I am confident that God is with me. Here's what I want us to do in this moment. I want you to think about one word that controls your future. For you, it's going to be different. It's not a magical word, but I want you to think about when you think about your future, maybe you have anxiety. Maybe it's your, your job causes you this anxiety of, you know what, I'm not in control of this, and you can't enjoy right now. You're missing out on joy right now because of something that may or may not happen in the future. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's another relationship. If you're single, maybe it's if you'll, you'll have this relationship. If you're married, maybe it's, man, I don't know what's going to happen in my future. But we all had this tendency to get stuck. And so I just want you to kind of think, what is it right now that's pulling you out of the presence of God and into the future and making you more of a Herod than a wise man? I'll tell you for me. For me, it's my to-do list. I feel so comfortable making to-do lists. Doing the to-do list, eh, that's okay. Making the to-do list for me makes me so comfortable. Thinking about what I'm going to do, what's going to happen. Everything's in control. I've got this. Man, it's going to be an awesome day. My to-do list looks like it's going to make for a great day. And so often I'll find myself rating how my day was 
if I was happy, if I had a good day, simply by how my to-do list went. So I want you to think for a moment. What is it that pulls you out of the present? Steals your joy, steals your peace, and knocks you into the future. Just one word. In fact, I'm going to go ahead in this moment. I'm going to invite the band up because here's what I want to close. In just a moment, we're going to sing. And I hope that as we sing, we have a bit of peace that comes over us, of knowing we don't have to be in control of our future. Because you see, if you invite God into your present the way that the wise man did, then all of a sudden you can have peace with the future, knowing it's going to be okay. God is going to protect me. God is going to be with me wherever we go. You know, a few years ago, it's been more than a few years now, my son Clayton was diagnosed with diabetes. And if you don't know anything about type 1 diabetes, it's, especially for a child, it's a very, uh, very scary disease. In fact, even, this, um, you know, even last night, my son's blood sugar ranged from about 350 down to about uh, 100 last night. And uh, some days in the last few weeks, it's gone down to 35, which is borderline. I mean, that's a scary situation. And there's a chance you don't wake up when you go that low. And, and when he was diagnosed with this, they'd take you to a class and they'd basically give you all this, this, these formulas. Hey, if this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do this. And you're still trying to process the fact that your son almost died. You're still trying to process the fact that life has just become a math equation. And it's a math equation with about 100 variables, and you know three of them. And, and so you're always trying to figure out, is it this? Is it this? Maybe he's this or this. And in the back of my mind, I, I started thinking as, as we got through this, you know what? Clayton and I have raised $6,000 to go to Peru. And I started thinking to myself, how am I going to take a child to a foreign country who's not known, especially up on the top of Machu Picchu or, or, or some of the places we go, not known for their health care, and I have no idea what I'm doing in the first place. Why, how am I going to take him out of the, uh, you know, a 20-minute window to get him to an emergency room? And as... Uh, I think back on it, what's incredible about this is my brother who at one point swore to me he would never go out of the country. He, in fact, he had this, this statement. He would say, why would I leave the country? Everything I need is in this country. But God had done something interesting many months before this. He had said, hey, I'm going to go on this mission trip. He said, I don't want to go on this mission trip. I don't want to leave the country. I'm going on this mission trip. The fascinating thing, though, is my brother also has a son who had had diabetes for eight years. And to him, these calculations were not overwhelming. It was just what happened. It's just every day for him. He could make these calculations. He could look at something and tell you this is how many carbs are in that. And so I went on this trip knowing I have no idea if my son's blood sugar is going to go high or low. The only thing I know is that my brother's going to be next door. And when I can't figure it out, he is going to be there, and I will wake him up. I will make sure that he is there. And so I scheduled him to be with me at every point. And you know what? A couple of times, in fact, on Machu Picchu, I got this picture of us having to give Clayton insulin, uh, um, actually sugar, because his blood sugar had gone low, and he's sitting up in this beautiful setting. And my brother is right there with us, telling us exactly what we need to do. I just want to remind us, 
when we think about your future, and maybe it seems overwhelming, if you only think about your future, you miss the present that God has given us at Christmas. He is with you. His presence is with you no matter what you go through. And he's better than just having uh, your brother with you. It's the presence of God who created you. This is what Jesus said after he died on a cross for you, after he rose from the grave. He looked at his disciples, the risen Christ, and he made this promise. He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you right now, and no matter what happens to you tomorrow and the next day and the next day, I will be with you. My hope is whenever you think about that word this week, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your kids that causes you worry, or maybe it's just getting cost, just the anticipation of Christmas, like I'll be happy then. When I get this, I'll be happy. I want you to think about that one statement. It's the first thing that, Jesus, that the angel says over Jesus. He'll call him Emmanuel. God is with us. And the last thing Jesus says, behold, I am with you always. And when you get overwhelmed, when you think, you know what, I can't handle tomorrow, I want you to think about the present of God. When you invite Christ into your life in the present, you will have peace in your future. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that not only do you save us from our past, you save us from our future. There are some of us who today just need to be reminded that you have forgiven us of our, of our past. You died on a cross as a sacrifice for whatever sins we have committed. But you rose from the grave and gave us a promise that just like you did, we will walk in new life. And when we walk in this new life, it's not that we're better, it's that we are in the presence of God. So Lord, as we get trapped in this anxiety of what's going to happen next, or maybe the uncertainty of knowing, hey, I'm not in control of tomorrow, what's going to happen? Maybe I didn't put all the pieces together. I pray that you'll just remind us and put this promise in our, our minds. He is with us. He is with me. You are with us. And Lord, when we sing, when we think about, when we praise your name, we don't do it in the hope that you'll be with us. We do it as a result of a promise you fulfilled. You are with us. And that is why we pray. That is why we rejoice. It's in your name. Amen.